Section 2 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 2 Civil Law, Part 1. Section 5 The Definition of Law. The law is the body of principles recognized and applied by the state in the administration of justice. Or, more shortly, the law consists of the rules recognized and acted on in courts of justice. It will be noticed that this is a definition not of a law, but of the law, and our first concern is to examine the significance of this distinction. The term law is used in two senses— which may be conveniently distinguished as the abstract and the concrete. In its abstract application we speak of the law of England, the law of libel, criminal law, and so forth. Similarly, we use the phrases law and order, law and justice, courts of law. It is to this usage that our definition is applicable. In its concrete sense, on the other hand, we say that Parliament has enacted or repealed a law. We speak of the by-laws of a railway company or municipal council. We hear of the corn laws or the navigation laws. The distinction demands attention for this reason, that the concrete term is not coextensive with the abstract in its application. Law, or the law, does not consist of the total number of laws in force, the constituent elements of which the law is made up are not laws, but rules of law or legal principles. That a will requires two witnesses is not rightly spoken of as a law of England. It is a rule of English law. A law means a statute, enactment, ordinance, decree, or any other exercise of legislative authority. It is one of the sources of law in the abstract sense. A law produces statute law, just as custom produces customary law, or as precedent produces case law. This ambiguity is a peculiarity of English speech. All the chief continental languages possess distinct expressions for the two meanings. Law in the concrete is lex, loi, gesetz, ledger. Law in the abstract is jus, droit, recht, dritto. It is not the case, indeed, that the distinction between these two sets of terms is always rigidly maintained, for we occasionally find the concrete word used in the abstract sense. Medieval Latin, for example, constantly uses lex as equivalent to jus, and the same usage is not uncommon in the case of the French loi. The fact remains, however, that the continental languages possess and in general make use of, a method of avoiding the ambiguity inherent in the single English term. Most English writers have, in defining law, defined it in the concrete, instead of in the abstract sense. They have attempted to answer the question, What is a law? While the true inquiry is, What is law? The central idea of juridical theory is not lex, but jus, not gesetz, but recht. To this inverted and unnatural method of procedure, 
there are two objections. In the first place, it involves a useless and embarrassing conflict with legal usage. In the mouths of lawyers, the concrete signification is quite unusual. They speak habitually of law, of the law, of rules of law, of legal principles, but rarely of a law or of the laws. When they have occasion to express the concrete idea, they avoid the vague generic expression and speak of some particular species of law, a statute, act of parliament, by-law, or rule of court. In the second place, this consideration of laws instead of law tends almost necessarily to the conclusion that statute law is the type of all law and the form to which all of it is reducible in the last analysis. It misleads inquirers by sending them to the legislature to discover the true nature and origin of law, instead of to the courts of justice. It is consequently responsible for much that is inadequate and untrue in the juridical theory of English writers. Section 6. The Administration of Justice We have defined law by reference to the administration of justice. It is needful, therefore, to obtain here some understanding of the essential nature of that function of the state, though a complete analysis of it must be deferred to a later period of our inquiry. That some form of compulsion and control is essential for the realization in human conduct of the idea of justice, experience has made sufficiently manifest. Unfortunately for the welfare of the world, men are not so constituted that to know the right is to do it. In the nature of things there is a conflict, partly real, partly only apparent, between the interests of man and man, and between those of individuals and those of society at large, and to leave every man free to do that which is right in his own eyes would fill the world with fraud and violence. We have seen, says Spinoza at the commencement of his treatise on politics, that the way pointed out by reason herself is exceedingly difficult, insomuch so that they who persuade themselves that a multitude of men can be induced to live by the rule of reason alone are dreamers of dreams and of the golden age of the poets. If, therefore, we would maintain justice, it is necessary to add compulsion to instruction. It is not enough to point out the way. It is needful to compel man to walk in it. Hence the existence of various regulative or coercive systems, the purpose of which is the upholding and enforcement of right and justice by some instrument of external constraint. One of the most important of these systems is the administration of justice by the state. Another is the control exercised over men by the opinion of the society in which they live. A third is that scheme of coercion established within the society of states for the enforcement of the principles of international justice. The administration of justice may therefore be defined as the maintenance of right within a political community by means of the physical force of the state. The instrument of coercion employed by any regulative system is called a sanction, and any rule of right supported by such means is said to be sanctioned. Thus, physical force, in the various methods of its application, is the sanction applied by the state 
in the administration of justice. Censure, ridicule, contempt are the sanctions by which society, as opposed to the state, enforces the rules of morality. War is the last and the most formidable of the sanctions which in the society of nations maintain the law of nations. Threatening of evils to flow here or hereafter from divine anger are the sanctions of religion, so far as religion assumes the form of a regulative or coercive system. A sanction is not necessarily a punishment or penalty. To punish wrongdoers is a very effectual way of maintaining the right, but it is not the only way. We enforce the rule of right not only by imprisoning the thief, but by depriving him of his plunder and restoring it to its true owner. And each of these applications of the physical force of the state is equally a sanction. The examination and classification of the different forms of sanction made use of by the state will claim our attention in a later chapter on the administration of justice. Section 7. Law Logically Subsequent to the Administration of Justice we have defined law as the body of principles observed and acted on by the state in the administration of justice. To this definition the following objection may be made. It may be said, In defining law by reference to the administration of justice, you have reversed the proper order of ideas. For law is the first in logical order and the administration of justice second. The latter, therefore, must be defined by reference to the former, and not vice versa. Courts of justice are essentially courts of law, justice in this usage being merely another name for law. The administration of justice is essentially the enforcement of law. The laws are the commands laid by the state upon its subjects, and the law courts are the organs through which these commands are enforced. Legislation, direct or indirect, must precede adjudication. Your definition of law is therefore inadequate, for it runs in a circle. It is not permissible to say that the law is the body of rules observed in the administration of justice, since this function of the state must itself be defined as the application and enforcement of the law. This objection is based on an erroneous conception of the essential nature of the administration of justice. The primary purpose of this function of the state is that which its name implies, to maintain right, to uphold justice, to protect rights, to redress wrongs. Law is secondary and unessential. It consists of the fixed principles in accordance with which this function is exercised. It consists of the pre-established and authoritative rules which judges apply in the administration of justice to the exclusion of their own free will and discretion. For good and sufficient reasons, the courts which administer justice are constrained to walk in predetermined paths. They are not at liberty to do that which seems right and just in their own eyes. They are bound hand and foot in the bonds of an authoritative creed which they must accept and act on without demur. This creed of the courts of justice constitutes the law, and so far as it extends, it excludes all right of private judgment. The law is the wisdom and justice of the organized commonwealth, formulated for the authoritative direction of those to whom the commonwealth has delegated its judicial functions. 
What a litigant obtains in the tribunals of a modern and civilized state is doubtless justice according to the law, but it is essentially and primarily justice and not law. Judges are appointed, in the words of the judicial oath, to do right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm. Justice is the end. Law is merely the instrument and the means, and the instrument must be defined by reference to its end. It is essential to a clear understanding of this matter to remember that the administration of justice is perfectly possible without law at all. Howsoever expedient it may be, howsoever usual it may be, it is not necessary that the courts of the state should, in maintaining right and redressing wrong, act according to those fixed and predetermined principles which are called the law. A tribunal in which right is done to all manner of people in such fashion as commends itself to the unfettered discretion of the judge, in which equity and good conscience and natural justice are excluded by no rigid and artificial rules, in which the judge does that which he deems just in the particular case, regardless of general principles, may not be an efficient or trustworthy tribunal, but is a perfectly possible one. It is a court of justice, which is not also a court of law. Moreover, even when a system of law exists, the extent of it may vary indefinitely. The degree in which the free discretion of a judge in doing right is excluded by predetermined rules of law is capable of indefinite increase or diminution. The total exclusion of judicial discretion by legal principle is impossible in any system. However great is the encroachment of the law, there must remain some residuum of justice which is not according to law, some activities in respect of which the administration of justice cannot be defined or regarded as the enforcement of the law. Law is a gradual growth from small beginnings. The development of a legal system consists in the progressive substitution of rigid pre-established principles for individual judgment, and to a very large extent these principles grow up spontaneously within the tribunals themselves. That great aggregate of rules which constitutes a developed legal system is not a condition precedent of the administration of justice, but a product of it. Gradually from various sources, precedent, custom, statute, there is collected a body of fixed principles which the courts apply to the exclusion of their private judgment. The question at issue in the administration of justice more and more ceases to be, what is the right and justice of this case, and more and more assumes the alternative form, what is the general principle already established and accepted as applicable to such a case as this. Justice becomes increasingly justice according to law, and courts of justice become increasingly courts of law. Section 8. Law and Fact The existence of law, as has been said, marked and measured by the exclusion, in courts of justice, of individual judgment by authority, of free discretion by rule, of liberty of opinion by pre-established determinations. The remarkable extent to which this exclusion is permitted is a very characteristic feature 
of the administration of justice. But it is not and cannot be complete. Judicial action is accordingly divisible into two provinces, one being that of law and the other that of fact. All matters that come for consideration before courts of justice are either matters of law or matters of fact. The former are those falling within the sphere of free-established and authoritative principle, while the latter are those pertaining to the province of unfettered judicial discretion. In other words, every question which requires an answer in a court of justice is either one of law or one of fact. The former is to be answered in accordance with established principles, one which has been already authoritatively answered, explicitly or implicitly, by the law. A question of fact, on the other hand, is one which has not been thus predetermined, one on which authority is silent, one which the court may and must answer and determine in accordance with its own individual judgment. It must be clearly understood that by a question of fact, as we have used the expression, is meant any question whatever except one of law, whether that question is or is not one of fact in the other senses of this equivocal term. We are not concerned, for example, with the distinction between matters of fact and matters of right, or with that between matters of fact and matters of opinion. Everything is fact for us which is not predetermined by legal principles. It is clear that this is the sense in which this term must inevitably be used, if the distinction between questions of fact and questions of law is to be exhaustive and logical. The distinction may be illustrated by the following examples. Whether a contractor has been guilty of unreasonable delay in building a house is a question of fact. The law contains no rules for its determination. But whether the holder of a bill of exchange has been guilty of unreasonable delay in giving notice of dishonor is a question of law to be determined in accordance with certain fixed principles laid down in the Bills of Exchange Act. Whether verbal or written evidence of a contract is the better is a question of law the superiority of the latter being the subject of a pre-existing and authoritative generalization. But whether the oral testimony of A or that of B is the better evidence is a question of fact, left entirely to the untrammeled judgment of the court. What is the proper and reasonable punishment for murder is a question of law, individual judicial opinion being absolutely excluded by a fixed rule. What is the proper and reasonable punishment for theft is, save so far as judicial discretion is limited by the statutory appointment of a maximum limit, a question of fact, on which the law has nothing to say. The question whether a child accused of a crime has sufficient mental capacity to be criminally responsible for his acts is one of fact, if the accused is over the age of seven years, but one of law, to be answered in the negative, if he is under that age. The point in issue is the meaning of a particular clause in an act of Parliament. Whether this is a question of fact or of law depends on whether the clause has already been the subject of authoritative judicial interpretation. If not, it is one of fact for the opinion of the court. 
If, however, there has already been a decision on the point, the question is one of law to be decided in accordance with the previous determination. The conclusion may seem paradoxical that a question of statutory interpretation may be one of fact, but a little consideration will show that the statement is correct. It is true, indeed, that the question is one as to what the law is. But a question of law does not mean one as to what the law is, but one to be determined in accordance with a rule of law. A question is very often both one of fact and one of law, and is then said to be a mixed question of law and fact. It is to be answered partly in accordance with fixed legal principles, and as to the residue in accordance with free judicial opinion. That is to say, it is not a simple, but a composite question, resolvable into a greater or less number of simple factors, some of which pertain to the sphere of the law, and the others to that of fact. Let us take, for example, the question as to the proper term of imprisonment for a certain convicted criminal. This may, according to circumstances, be a pure question of fact, a pure question of law, or a mixed question of law and of fact. It belongs to the first of these classes if the law contains no provision whatever on the matter, the court having in consequence a perfectly free hand. It belongs to the second class if the matter is definitely predetermined by a fixed rule, appointing the exact length of imprisonment to be awarded. It belongs to the third class if the law has fixed a minimum or maximum term, but has left the court with full liberty within the appointed limits. Similarly, whether the defendant has been guilty of fraud is a mixed question of law and of fact, because it is resolvable into two elements, one of law and the other of fact. What acts the defendant has done, and with what intent he did them, are pure questions of fact. But whether such acts, done with such intent, amount to fraud is a pure question of law. So the question of whether a partnership exists between A and B is partly one of fact, viz. what agreement has been made between these persons, and partly one of law, viz. whether such an agreement constitutes the relation of partnership. Similar composite questions are innumerable. The distinction between matters of fact and matters of law is thrown into great prominence by the composite character of the typical English tribunal and the resulting division of functions between judge and jury. The general rule is that questions of law are for the judge, and questions of fact for the jury. This rule is subject, however, to numerous and important exceptions. Though there are no cases in which the law is left to the jury, there are many questions of fact which are withdrawn from the cognizance of the jury and answered by the judge. The interpretation of a written document, for example, may be, and very often is, a pure matter of fact, and nevertheless falls within the province of the judge. So the question of reasonable and probable cause for prosecution, which arises in actions for malicious prosecution, is one of fact, and yet one for the judge himself. So it is the duty of the judge to decide whether there is any sufficient evidence to justify a verdict for the plaintiff, and if he decides that there is not, the case is withdrawn from the jury altogether. Yet in the majority of cases 
this is a mere matter of fact undetermined by any authoritative principles the validity of a legal principle is entirely independent of its truth it is a valid principle of law not because it is true but because it is accepted and acted on by the tribunals of the state the law is the theory of things as received and acted on within the courts of justice and this theory may or may not conform to the reality of things outside the eye of the law does not infallibly see things as they are nor is this divergence of law from truth and fact necessarily and in its full extent inexpedient the law if it is to be an efficient and workable system must needs be blind to many things and the legal theory of things must be simpler than the reality partly by deliberate design therefore and partly by the errors and accidents of historical development law and fact legal theory and the truth of things are far from complete coincidence we have ever to distinguish that which exists in deed and in truth from that which exists in law fraud in law for example may not be fraud in fact and vice versa that is to say when the law lays down a principle determining in any class of cases what shall be deemed fraud and what shall not this principle may or may not be true and so far as it is untrue the truth of things is excluded by the legal theory of things in like manner that which is considered right or reasonable by the law may be far from possessing these qualities in truth and fact legal justice may conflict with natural justice a legal wrong may not be also a moral wrong nor a legal duty a moral duty section nine the justification of the law we have seen that the existence of law is not essential to the administration of justice howsoever expedient it is not necessary that this function of the state should be exercised in accordance with those rigid principles which constitute a legal system the primary purpose of the judicature is not to enforce law but to maintain justice and this latter purpose is in its nature separable from the former and independent of it even when justice is administered according to law the proportion between the sphere of legal principle and that of judicial discretion is different in different systems and varies from time to time this being so it is well to make inquiry into the uses and justification of the law to consider the advantages and disadvantages of this substitution of fixed principles for the arbitrium judicious in the administration of justice in order that we may be enabled to judge whether this substitution be good or evil and if good within what limits it should be confined that it is on the whole expedient that courts of justice should become courts of law no one can seriously doubt yet the elements of evil involved in the transformation are too obvious and serious ever to have escaped recognition laws are in theory as hooker says the voices of right reason they are in theory the utterances of justice speaking to men by the mouth of the state but too often in reality they fall far short of this ideal too often they turn judgment to wormwood and make the administration of justice a reproach 
nor is this true merely of the earlier and ruder stages of legal development. At the present day our law has learnt, in a measure never before attained, to speak the language of sound reason and good sense, but it still retains in no slight degree the vices of its youth. Nor is it to be expected that at any time we shall altogether escape from the perennial conflict between law and justice. It is needful, therefore, that the law should plead and prove the ground and justification of its existence. The chief uses of the law are three in number. The first of these is that it imparts uniformity and certainty to the administration of justice. It is vitally important not only that judicial decisions should be correct, distinguishing accurately between right and wrong, and appointing fitting remedies for injustice, but also that the subjects of the state should be able to know beforehand the decision to which on any matter the courts of justice will come. This provision is impossible unless the course of justice is uniform, and the only effectual method of procuring uniformity is the observance of those fixed principles which constitute the law. It would be well, were it possible, for the tribunals of the state to recognize and enforce the rules of absolute justice. But it is better to have defective rules than to have none at all. For we expect from the coercive action of the state not merely the maintenance of abstract justice, but the establishment within the body politic of some measure of system, order, and harmony in the actions and relations of its members. It is often more important that a rule should be definite, certain, known, and permanent, than that it should be ideally just. Sometimes, indeed, the element of order and certainty is the only one which requires consideration, it being entirely indifferent what the rule is, so long as it exists and is adhered to. The rule of the road is the best and most familiar example of this, but there are many other instances in which justice seems dumb, and yet it is needful that a definite rule of some sort should be adopted and maintained. For this reason, we require in great part to exclude judicial discretion by a body of inflexible law. For this reason it is that in no civilized community do the judges and magistrates to whom is entrusted the duty of maintaining justice exercise with a free hand the viri boni arbitrium. The more complex our civilization becomes, the more needful is its regulation by law and the less practicable the alternative method of judicial procedure. In simple and primitive communities it is doubtless possible, and may even be expedient, that rulers and magistrates should execute judgment in such manner as best commends itself to them. But in the civilization to which we have now attained, any such attempt to substitute the deliverances of natural reason for predetermined principles of law would lead to chaos. Reason says Jeremy Taylor, is such a box of quicksilver that it abides nowhere. It dwells in no settled mansion, it is like a dove's neck. And if we inquire after the law of nature, that is to say the principles of justice, by the rules of our reason we shall be as uncertain as the discourses of the people or the dreams of disturbed fancies. It is to be observed in the second place that the necessity of conforming to publicly declared principles 
protects the administration of justice from the disturbing influence of improper motives on the part of those entrusted with judicial functions. The law is necessarily impartial. It is made for no particular person and for no individual case, and so admits of no respective persons, and is deflected from the straight course by no irrelevant considerations peculiar to the special instance. Given a definite rule of law, a departure from it by a hair's breadth is visible to all men. But within the sphere of individual judgment the differences of honest opinion are so manifold and serious that dishonest opinion can pass in great part unchallenged and undetected. Where the duty of the judicature is to execute justice in accordance with fixed and known principles, the whole force of the public conscience can be brought to the enforcement of that duty and the maintenance of those principles. But when courts of justice are left to do that which is right in their own eyes, this control becomes to a great extent impossible, public opinion being left without that definite guidance which is essential to its force and influence. So much is this so, that the administration of justice according to law is rightly to be regarded as one of the first principles of political liberty. The legislative or supreme authority, says Locke, cannot assume to itself a power to rule by extemporary, arbitrary decrees, but is bound to dispense justice and to decide the rights of the subject by promulgated standing laws and known authorized judges. So, in the words of Cicero, we are the slaves of the law that we may be free. It is to its impartiality far more than to its wisdom, for this latter version it too often lacks, that are due the influence and reputation which the law has possessed at all times. Wise or foolish, it is the same for all, and to it therefore men have ever been willing to submit their quarrels, knowing, as Hooker says, that the law doth speak with all indifferency, that the law hath no side respect to their persons. Hence, the authority of a judgment according to law, the reference of international disputes to arbitration, and the loyal submission of nations to awards so made, are possible only in proportion to the development and recognition of a definite body of international law. The authority of the arbitrators is not that of the law is already sufficient to maintain in great part the peace of the world. So, in the case of the civil law, only so far as justice is transformed into law, and the love of justice into the spirit of law-abidingness, will the influence of the judicature rise to an efficient level, and the purposes of civil government be adequately fulfilled. Finally, the law serves to protect the administration of justice from the errors of individual judgment. The establishment of the law is the substitution of the opinion and conscience of the community at large for those of the individuals to whom judicial functions are entrusted. The principles of justice are not always clearly legible by the light of nature. The problems offered for judicial solution are often dark and difficult, and there is great need of guidance from that experience and wisdom of the world at large of which the law is the record. The law is not always wise, but on the whole, and in the long run, it is wiser than those who administer it. To express the will and reason of the body politic and claims by that title to overrule the will and reason of judges and magistrates 
no less than those of private men. To seek to be wiser than the laws, says Aristotle, is the very thing which is by good laws forbidden. End of section 2